went to several camps and the first one he went to he saw a pyramid of amputated limbs that freaked him out you know he just saw the horrors of these battles it just he just felt like i need to be involved in this somehow you know i'm going to be the poet of america and that's my vocation that's my calling to do that no matter what it takes Welcome to another edition of the Must Book Club. Today we are talking about Specimen Days by Walt Whitman. And we've got a very cool guest. George Hutchinson is professor of American culture at Cornell University. He's also the author of The Ecstatic Whitman, Literary Shamanism and the Crisis of Union. This is a wide-ranging conversation about Whitman, who is in and of himself a wide-ranging subject. So let's dive right in. The way we like to start these conversations each each time around is wonder of all the authors that you uh, have focused on and have drawn your attention. What about Whitman caught your eye? I fell in love with Whitman when I was in college, actually, a long time ago. I had read him a little bit in high school, and then I had him in like a survey of American literature my sophomore year, and I didn't get it. You know, I seemed like just patriotic poetry to me and stuff like that. And then I don't know what happened. It must have been in a class when suddenly I realized, this is amazing. (laughs) I mean, reading the poetry, this is amazing. I can't believe someone actually did this, you know, wrote this. It was something about the beauty of his view of existence, you know, what it was like to be in this world, you know, and the, the sensuousness of his poetry. And, and then I, and I finally got that his poetry, as formless as it seems, it actually has these beautiful rhythms to it. Well, I don't know if I knew this at the time, but I know it now. They derive from more the rhythm of natural processes. Like, well, for example, you know, he grew up near the ocean. If you think about the rhythms of his poetry, there's not a regular rhythm. It, it doesn't follow what lyric poetry usually does, rhyme and metrics and all that kind of stuff. It's quite irregular, and yet it has a kind of rhythm to it. And think of when you're at the seashore and the way the waves wash up. It's totally irregular. There, you know, it's, it, there's a kind of randomness to it, and yet at the same time, there's a real rhythm to it. And then you think about how those waves are connected to the tides, you know, and, you know, and how the shoreline is developed and so forth. And the tide, what, what, what creates the tides? The movement of the moon around the earth creates the tides. And then there are these other rhythms beyond that, and they're all connected to each other in one way or another, you know, the movement of the earth around the sun which creates the seasons, you know, and the tilting of the earth and all this kind of stuff. And none of it seems regular in, you know, like a metronome. And yet there's a regularity to it. So gradually that was something that I really picked up on Whitman's poetry. That, that's in terms of the form, but the, also just, to me, he's the great poet of democracy, you know, and not me alone. I mean, almost everyone in the world refers to him that way. 
Whitman seems like he identifies himself like so much with American culture and the creation of American yeah. culture, you know, as, as a, a, almost like a central figure in our understanding of what American culture is or could be. How do you think about him relative to the culture itself? Yeah, that's a great point. I think that to me and to many people, he's given the greatest resonance to the idea of democracy and the fact that democracy isn't just a form of government, a uh, political process, but it's actually a new way of being in the world, a, a new way of thinking about how people form their social relationships with each other and so forth. That's something that's hard for us to think about because we're so used to being living in a democratic culture, a democratic society. But in his day, it was not at all true. And um, the United States was, you know, most of the world thought it would be a failed experiment until after the Civil War. The Civil War is what finally proved to Whitman and to many other people that, oh, no, this, this form of government can actually survive in a large, diverse nation. You know, he identified so much with the country. He, he was from a generation that came up after the revolution when the Revolutionary War veterans were all dying off. And his generation of people were feeling, can we keep this alive? You know, that, that old spirit of the American Revolution, all the patriots are dying. How are we going to carry it forward? This is a, a text that's largely about the Civil War, this specific one. How do you think Whitman processed the Civil War? His actual poetry, which started, you know, leading up in the 1850s, leading up to the Civil War, was in the period when the sectional rivalries, fight over slavery and the extension of slavery and so forth, the fugitive slave law, was all heating up and splitting the country apart. And so that was a great crisis of democracy for his generation. Again, you have to realize that they did not know if democracy was something that could succeed, you know, as a new social form. And so this was a tremendous threat to almost a religious kind of devotion that he and his family had to the idea of democracy and America. He came to feel that the Civil War was the second birth of democracy that it was the one that proved that this could work. And uh, in fact, he even referred to it as a new parturition of the nation. The way he interpreted it, it proved his faith. You know, the, he had this very deep faith that democracy was kind of written into the natural world itself, that this is, that human nature itself wanted democracy, wanted equality uh, and so forth. So the threat that the slave power, as he would put it, the secessionists and so forth, the, the threat that they represented to that idea was existential. You know, it was more than just a political issue. It, for him, it was cosmic. You know, it was just, this means the natural world, everything in the world, you know, my religion has been torn to pieces by this because I believe that this was simply the way that things would go. Humanity is destined to go in this direction toward democratic egalitarianism. As a scholar, you come across many, many different texts that you could do work on. What was it the, about this text that you, when you read it, what did you see? The way I saw it, he was, you know, he wrote Specimen Days late in life. 
And so he's someone who feels he's approaching death. He's been paralyzed for years since shortly after the Civil War, and he's trying to put his life together. And then while I was reading these, you know, these snippets, you know, these memoranda, these specimens, as he calls them, um, from periods of his life, I thought, what is going on here? What's the pattern? You know, what's happening? And then I started reading. There was a big thing at that period of time when I was working on this about aging. There's lots of studies of aging and so forth. And the, the idea that as people age, when they reach a certain age, they have to find a kind of personal integrity. They have to put their life together and to think this is the way it had to be, you know, not just think I'm just this random atom where these things, you know, I, I made the wrong choices and I really fucked up, you know, but, but there's, there's a way in which it all fits together. And that's clearly partly what he's doing in Specimen Days. He's putting his life together and he's putting in the context of national history and also embedding natural history in kind of natural and cosmic processes. So there's this whole interconnection of all these things. And um, yeah, that's still the thing that captivates me the most about Specimen Days. So it seems like it was there were kind of diary entries that were written in one period of his life that were actual recordings of things that he saw and people that he yeah. was dealing with. But then uh, the actual publication of it came decades later. Correct. Yeah. Do you know what he did to that text? Because like uh, what I gather about Whitman is he was always kind of fiddling with things, yeah. Yeah. you know? There is actually, you can get a facsimile edition of the memoranda. And he, he did subtly change them, but they're pretty similar. They're very close, you know, to, to what he had in the memoranda. Another thing that might be worth mentioning is that in certain letters that he wrote to his mother during that time, he talks about things that he doesn't, doesn't bring up in the memoranda. So, for example, the execution of a boy who tried to desert. He wanted to go back and see his mother. And the Union Army caught him and they brought him back and they executed him. And Whitman saw this. And the poor boy, you know, was crying and all this kind of stuff. And he just said, mother, you know, sometimes it's just too much. I can't stand it. It's more than I can handle. So there are things that he, even in the memoranda, he didn't put down, but that he saw, which in some ways make one wonder about, you know, the positivity running through, through specimen days. You know, still there's this faith, you know, that the union is rising up and this and that is happening. But in the meantime, he's seeing that even within the union forces, he's seeing these brutal policies that he can hardly bear, you know, to experience. It's Whitman's bicentennial right now. Yep. So that's a good enough reason to, for a lot of people who maybe haven't read him to kind of check it out as a celebration. But there also just seems to be something about this moment that Whitman seems kind of well-suited for, you know, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a need for optimism during a time of like cultural tearing in America. How do you how do you think about Whitman in this moment and of all the people that, you know, somebody could read? 
why would you recommend they pick up Whitman right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think because I don't think the I don't think the United States has ever been so polarized in its history as it was in the Civil War and as it is now. So it and I'm not saying it's as badly polarized as it was then, but at least in my lifetime, and I'm I'll be 67 in a few days. <laughs> It has never been this polarized. And, you know, there are many other people who say it hasn't been this polarized since before the Civil War. And um, so I would say that's it, that he lived through that kind of moment. And what the Civil War did for him was he said, as you know, I think even in one of the, in one of the portions of the specimen days that you published, talks about a primal hard pan of belief in democracy. So um, that there was something almost like a geological force in the people that said, no, 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 we cannot abide the secession, right? You know, that slavery was wrong. You know, for me, I guess I'm revealing some of my politics here, but for me, it's like what we're seeing is a threat to democracy in the United States today. And that's what he saw in his time you know, as dreadful as it all seemed, and who knew what the end would be. Finally, as he saw it, the common people won out, you know, and the idea of democracy won out. And that proved to him that it was, in fact, almost like a natural force. It's like something inborn. It's something that people have always desired. There is a kind of rhyme between that period and today in terms of the polarization. Uh, in the two periods. Thank you so much for your comments. It's just, uh, it's, it's, this is so fun. Uh, my question is a bit more academic, I guess you could say. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I teach high school. I also have a PhD in American literature. So oh, cool. I, I wonder if you can convey to the group how uh, much of a breakthrough Whitman was in terms of the whole landscape of American literature. Um, you know, if we, if we, review your the summary of your work to date you do a lot of work in african-american literature and so writing about the self was happening in that world at the same time that whitman was writing about himself and then whitman is often regarded as being a modernist before the modernist movement took hold and then the modernist movement had a profound impact on african-american literature as well um, i just wonder if you could try to articulate how you know whitman alongside dickinson are regarded as being the sort of prophets of the of the future of America. Right. They often say yeah. the mother and father. Yeah. Yes, yes. So why is why is that in yes, go ahead. It's because Whitman created the first truly new form of poetry in North America. You know, one that really did it, it did not in any way resemble anything that had been written in European literature earlier, or any other literature for that matter. Um, so it was truly revolutionary, you know, you know, breaking the form of it in particular, um, and, you know, in the ways that I was expressing, the attitude to nature. And then another thing that was absolutely critical for Whitman was the equality of the soul and the body, which is something that went against the whole Western tradition 
the whole Western tradition, even through the transcendentalists that he is often connected with, they still thought the spirit was above the body. And that division of spirit and body or soul and body and so forth, spirit and matter, was in, in a lot of ways, it was connected with the hierarchies of male and female, intelligence and feeling, you know, races, all that kind of stuff. The, you know, the highest races were the most intellectual, the most spiritual, the lowest were this, that, and the other. And, and even a lot of that is even embedded in Christianity. And so it was truly revolutionary for him to say, lack one lacks both, you know, the soul and the body, they're, they're equal uh, and almost interchangeable in a certain sense. If you don't have the one, you don't have the other. That's what made him, you know, really, you know, the most revolutionary of American poets. And then of course, you know, where he managed to develop this revolutionary new form, which was nonetheless really, you know, once you got used to it, really beautiful, you know, I mean, to the inner ear, you know, as you read the poems, you just think, man, this stuff really, it has this beautiful music to it. It's a very acquired taste, that's for sure. There were a couple of people that preceded him. I actually think that what he did was he studied all kinds of religious forms of expression, the Old Testament, Hindu texts. Uh, he, studied, he studied ancient witchcraft in Europe. Uh, he studied all kinds of ecstatic religious phenomena, you know, prophets and witch doctor types and all that kind of stuff. And he was studying books of oratory. You know, they were like primers for people to become great speakers. And before he wrote Leaves of Grass, you know, he'd been a journalist and he was so frustrated with the direction of the country that he was going to become what he called a wander speaker. So he wanted to develop an ability to speak in a charismatic way to large audiences of working people. To me, I mean, this sounds crazy, you know, and very naive. But so he was studying these oratorical kind of things. And that's where he got some of the quirks in his early writing, uh, his early poetry. And then he realized he wasn't really a very good public speaker. It ended up moving in this direction. There is a certain type of ecstatic expression that develops within many cultures when there's a real crisis of belief and meaning. And it tends toward this charismatic form of expression and incantatory. And that's what you see above all, you know, in his early poetry, it's, it's very incantatory. So it doesn't follow Western poetic conventions. And yet, you know, if you read the Old Testament or you read other kinds of uh, texts or hear, you know, whether it's witchcraft incantations or whatever, you will notice that there is this kind of a rhythm that goes on in those things that is spellbinding or it's intended to be spellbinding. Yeah, I, I have a follow-up question about that because David was asking earlier about how Whitman can meet our moment in terms of a democratic crisis, but also in terms of ecological crisis. I know you do some oh, yeah. work on environment and literature. I was reading um, Amitav Ghosh, The Great Derangement yeah. in his book. He argues that contemporary literature simply does not have the imaginative faculty to deal with what's happening. 
Yeah. They just they, writers today just can't go there. And I wonder, it sounds like you're, you would argue that Whitman can speak to that particular crisis as well. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. And, and uh, Ghosh, I'm glad you brought that up. He's specifically talking about the novel, you know. But yeah, he but he extends that to everyone, you know. And anyway, he a little bit overdoes it, but it's a great book. Uh, but yeah, Whitman, I mean, he hits all the hot buttons today when it comes to, you know, ecological consciousness, ecochrism, and so forth. For one thing, he sees himself as an animal. And he the way he uses animals in his poetry is not the way that poets before him used animals, talked about animals, befriended animals. People, his contemporaries who knew him, some of them said, Whitman, when you look into his eyes at some moments, he has the look of a dumb animal, <laughs> yearning. You know, imagine when your dog is trying to get you to take him out for a walk or something like that. There was this kind of a thing, you know, that they just saw this animal quality to him. But he also, you know, by saying spirit and body, you know, it's not a hierarchy there. That goes right at the crux of a lot of what eco-criticism is about today and ecological consciousness. Um, but of course, in his time, he, would, he could never have imagined that humanity, specifically Western humanity, and you know, the forms of modern society we have today, the, all the fossil fuels and all that, he could never have imagined that they were endangering the life of so many species. So he, he wasn't thinking of it politically in that sense. It was much more at a, um, you know, it was, it was a much more philosophical level or, you know, poetic level about simply his own experience of life, you know, and, and thinking, no, you know, animals, they are just as spiritual as we are and everything, you know, is, is equal and, and this kind of sense. So, it, what that has in common with common eco ecological consciousness is the notion that the land and all of the inhabitants of it form a community. And they don't belong to us. We're part of a community. And we, we are dependent on that community as it is dependent upon us. And in that sense, then, you can see that his poetry really, even formally, fits into that notion. And Specimen Days does too, as well, you know, coming back to the reading for today, because even when he's talking about the Civil War, he uses these, he uses these metaphors of earthquakes, um, you know, volcanic emotions. Uh, you know, he talks about it toward the end of the war, he talks about uh, some of the selections you guys published, the bodies floating down rivers, you know, the bodies, the skeletons in the, in the earth, you know, that these men who fought for democracy, they're becoming part of the geography of the country. And he talks about the space of the country and so forth. So it's all, you know, these things are all connected for him. And he really connects human history with natural history and the, the kind of dialectical relationship between the two. That's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Courtney, do you want to uh, unmute, introduce yourself, ask your question. Yeah, hi, I'm Courtney. I have a question. How much do you think of his, uh, the story that you just told about the 
um, execution of the boy made me think that how much do you think of his optimism was based in this kind of hopefulness for the future? And then how much do you think it was maybe in a kind of almost like a denial or a way to deal with the difficult times that he was going through? I think that he, at the point when he wrote Specimen Days in particular, he was trying to fit all this stuff into uh, a hopeful narrative that would help give meaning to his life. Because again, you know, he, he's been, he's gone through like two or three paralytic strokes. He suspects he's not gonna live too much longer. And he's trying to put his life together and think of it as having been kind of written into the book of nature, that it is connected to cosmic processes and, and among the cosmic processes, the advent of democracy and the proof of democracy in the Civil War. And so he screens out those moments during the war itself when he really had great doubt. When he saw these things, he said, you know, there were moments, you know, in the letters where you see it just seems like humans are just such butchers, you know, and they can do such evil things, you know. Uh, he watches um, at one point, it seems to me, in one of the letters, he talks about how he saw some Union soldiers basically practically torturing rebel soldiers that they had captured, and it, it, he's absolutely revolted by it. But of course, we know that this is what happens in every war. I mean, these things happen. And it reveals something about human nature that when Whitman's trying to put it all together, it's, he, he's not going to put that part in. Another thing he doesn't mention in Specimen Days, I have to say, and I'm sad to say, is that um, he did not, for the most part, go to the hospitals in which the black soldiers were being treated. And he said, there are some things that are too much for me which I, I think partly means that the facilities where they were being treated were not as good as even the ones where the white soldiers were. And the ones where the white soldiers were were horrible also. But the other thing is that he didn't feel the kind of intimacy or family relationship to the black soldiers that he did to the white soldiers. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a tragic aspect uh, of Whitman's own personality, um, as well as that of the country. Hi, I'm Shaista. So I'm interested in this idea of him wanting to be a great orator or orator and speaking specifically to lower or working class peoples, which makes me think of MLK or Fred Hammond and the work they were doing before their lives were ended. Um, mm -hmm. But really realizing he was not a great speaker, do you feel that he instead directed that energy towards the written word believing that it would eventually reach its intended audience. And for me, I'm kind of conflicted about that, seeing as the written word can sometimes form a barrier outside of the public sphere for certain audiences. So Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Yeah, and it's very apropos, because in fact, he was worried about that. And um, the first edition of Leaves of Grass, he published himself. <laughs> what we would call today a vanity publication. And, you know, very few people bought it or anything like that. He sent it around to certain people, uh, you know, famous uh, literary folks at the time. And, you know, luckily, Ralph Waldo Emerson loved it. So after that edition came out, the second edition, he specifically 
made a, a certain size that could fit in the pocket of a working man's pants or coat, you know, or the kind of clothes that they wore at that time. So it was, you know, the first edition was this big thing, you know, it was like eight and a half by 11 uh, size. And, uh, you know, we used to think that was because he wanted it to be big so those long flowing lines could flow across the page. But now it seems that there were just pages that size that were lying around that he could get cheaply. <laughs> and, so, and so for the second edition, he, he got, you know, he, he did one that was more the way he wanted to do it. And there are even things in the, the second, all the editions are very different from each other, but especially the early ones. In that second edition, it was like he literally had poems saying, take this book out every day and read a few lines while you're resting, you know, and, and he thought people would do this, which of course they weren't doing, you know, I mean, it, there were very few people who purchased the book, but yeah, he was trying to reach those working people. He absolutely, this is not, you know, this book is not intended for the middle classes or for the capitalists. He saw the Northern capitalists and the Southern slaveocracy as being in cahoots with each other. And he thought that if the common working people uh, could rise up and, you know, and see what was the threat to democracy that was coming from that concentration of wealth and power in the few, which is another case of how we can see the echoes for today, then democracy could be saved by them. Yeah, what you ask is right on. I'm Annalisa Roach, and I am an engineer turned homeschool mom. Um, so I know nothing about Whitman. It's, it's a real mm -hmm. blessing to uh, be educating myself in many ways for the first time outside of math and science. Um, the Mouse Book Club is great for that. Um, and my question is that I was, I was struck in this reading by what seemed to be incredible generosity in the way he visited the war injured and bring, brought them gifts and helped them write letters and mm -hmm. tried to acquire things they needed and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just curious, and again, I'm brand new to him, so you're not gonna tell me anything I already know. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you think motivated this, this generosity and where he found the time and just if you could talk more about that kind of good work he did. Yeah, how did he find the time? Well, for one thing, he, by then he had dedicated himself you know, to being a poet. And although he was not able to make a living as a poet yet at the time of the outbreak of the Civil War, you know, he was doing various different kinds of things and he was very poor. You know, he, when the war broke out, this felt to him like an enormous crisis. Mm -hmm. And he started by working in the hospitals near where he lived in around New York. His family read in the newspapers that his brother had been wounded and was somewhere down around Northern Virginia, and they didn't know where, and they didn't know how he had been or what had happened. So he went down there to try to find his brother, George Whitman, George Washington Whitman. <laughs> he had three brothers named after presidents. And, and he, he went to several camps. And the first one he went to, he saw a pyramid of amputated limb that freaked him out. And then, you know, he just saw the horrors of these battles. It just, he just felt like I need to be involved in this somehow. And of course he already felt he had this vocation of being the poet of democracy, you know, 
and that this was the great crisis of democracy. And so I think he already was creating a kind of narrative for his own life where it was like, you know, I'm going to be the poet of America, you know, and uh, I am going to be the one who's there for the Civil War, um, as certain other, say, Greek poets were for the Peloponnesian War, you know. That's my vocation. That's my calling to do that, no matter what it takes. He, he did find George eventually. He had to go to several camps. George had been wounded in the cheek by a piece of shrapnel, but was fine, you basically. And George would go on through the rest of the Civil War, through many of the major battles, and come out essentially unscathed. While Whitman was in Washington, did he cross paths with Lincoln at all? Yeah, well, he definitely saw Lincoln. Yeah, and uh, lots of people did. You know, it was a different world then. I mean, back in those days, you know, the president wasn't constantly surrounded by, um, you know, security the, guards and yeah. so on and so forth. And, you know, people had access to the grounds of the White House and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, he definitely saw Lincoln. He, he saw Lincoln um, uh, while he was on his way to Washington, D.C. after his election when there were all kinds of threats on Lincoln's life. And he, as he passed through New York City, Whitman went to this gathering where Lincoln appeared. You know, he later wrote about how there were assassins in the crowd. You know, there were people who were attending, intending to assassinate Lincoln in that crowd. There's an apocryphal story, which probably isn't true, but who knows, where Lincoln watched, saw Whitman walking down the street in Washington, I guess Pennsylvania Avenue, and said, now that looks like a man. Although that's probably later kind of hero worship of Whitman. What did Lincoln come to represent for Whitman? Yeah, he was like the Jesus Christ of democracy, you know, the great martyr. And Lincoln's assassination for Whitman was this universally important moment, the great tragedy that defined the identity of the United States. Here was the man who had put down the greatest threat to the existence of democracy and, and gave his life for it. Uh, and so in that way, it concentrated the meaning of all of those other deaths of all of those boys and men who had died in the Civil War, that Lincoln brought it all together. Um, but Whitman also talked about it as being like the popping of a seed, you know, in the growth of vegetation. That it, it, he also called it the new parturition of our democracy, the new birth of democracy, and which in retrospect, historians see the Civil War as having been a kind of second birth of democracy, actually. He saw Lincoln as this just absolutely crucial figure, almost ordained by fate to play the role that he played. Uh, and he, you know, at the beginning, before the Civil War, he he didn't have that high of an opinion of Lincoln, actually, but he developed it very quickly after Lincoln became president. What do you think he would be doing if he was alive right now? Well, you um, know who? Oh, I'll, I'll no, tell I you who's like Whitman today. Bob Dylan. His latest album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, the very lead song on it is called I Contain Multitudes. Whitman has a famous line in Song of Myself. Do I contradict myself? All right, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And of course, he was meaning about America. But Dylan is <laughs> drawing straight off of that. 
I was just working out to this song earlier today, but he, you know, Dylan also, you know, in his songs, he's always these different personae. He takes on these different personalities, just like Whitman in Song of Myself takes on all these different personalities. And, you know, and Dylan is rummaging through the American songbook of all, you know, through the whole diversity of it and using all these different voices, all these different personas. You can't figure out who Bob Dylan himself is. And that's also true of Whitman. Thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Special thanks to Professor Hutchinson for sharing his wisdom. George also had the presentation credit on the new Penguin edition of Kane by Gene Toomer that just came out uh, a year ago. So check that out anywhere you get Penguin books. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, most books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again and please join us next week.